0: Hello, my friends, and welcome back to Fearless Questions, where we follow our questions to freedom. I'm your host, Jeff Blackburn, and today I am very excited to get to welcome in a new friend, author, and speaker, Carolyn Custis-James. Carolyn, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: I'm very good. Um, it's kind of a storming right now in Indianapolis where I'm at, so if the lightning... Uh, turns off the power or something like that. We'll uh, we'll have awkward pauses and and restart. But no, I'm I'm very good here. And I know that you're in Philadelphia, and it's a just everybody's greasing the the poles outside so they don't climb up with all the celebration with Villanova, and, right?
1: Yes, we are in low supply of Crisco here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and um and you've got the Eagles, you've got Villanova. Is there any, Are you guys? Do you have high hopes for the Phillies this year, or is that still kind of a tempered tempered I- reality there?
1: Think always, you know, and I always say this: I have a a track record of being a charm for World Series because, really, (laughs) yeah, because four cities we've lived in, the local team has won the World Series. Wow! And and so, yeah, people around here that who know me have high hopes. I, I, yeah, it's um, good. When we were first married, we moved to. Philadelphia and the Phillies won the World Series. And then we moved out to Southern California and the Dodgers won. And then we moved to Oxford and they don't have a baseball team. But when, <laughs> when we came back to the States, we moved to Florida and the Marlins won. And then we. Um, Several years ago, we moved to Boston, and the Red Sox won. And I was even in Chicago when the tide turned for the Cubs.
0: Well, okay, so we need to get general managers on the phone right now and work this into your contract and such. So
1: I don't know if I can do it twice. That's the problem with the (laughs) Phillies. So, Uh,
0: and you mentioned being in Oxford. That's kind of a fun connection. They have the, the. um, I think they just have the Bulls, right? The Oxford isn't that the local football club? Um, I I didn't.
1: Get into that. <laughs> okay. Well,
0: I just knew because uh, my kids were of the age that the the cinema and the bowling alley were right next to the uh, the local football club stadium, so we got exposed to that pretty early. But um, uh, tell tell people real quick you've written a number of books. Um, today, your most recent one is called Finding God in the Margins. It's a a work taking another look at the Book of Ruth in the Bible. Um, another book not too long ago you wrote was Maelstrom. Uh, let's see, Manhood Swept into the Currents of a Changing World, which received a number of awards for Book of the Year and Christianity Today, which is pretty cool. And, and you've written a number of others as well, but a lot of of your work has um, seems to have centered around um, women in the Bible. Um, of course, Maelstrom deals with the, the issues around um, men as well, um, patriarchy and things of that nature. So we're going to jump into all that today but just briefly totally for my sake because i've got you here tell me about how you ended up in oxford because it changed my life and i wonder if it might have changed yours too
1: yes well um my husband's an academic and he was nearly finished with his um with his first with his first doctorate is what <laughs> it turns out um and he realized because for a number of reasons, I mean, affirmative action was pretty strong at that point. And he was a white male and, you know, just not getting anywhere with with job applications. And so someone, another academic said, if you want to teach, you need to get a, another doctorate okay. and, um, you know, something to set you apart. And so um, that's when we went to Oxford and um the other thing that had happened when we got married, I had already finished my seminary training and had been working in a church in Texas and when we married we um he was in he was in Philadelphia and so that's where I went to and didn't know where to plug in. So I just got a job at a local hospital in hospital administration. I was a secretary for one of the Vice presidents, and
0: was that the JR? Sorry, the, was that the JR Hospital, the John, the Radcliffe?
1: No, that was here in Philly. Oh, you're in
0: Philly. Okay, I still got lost back in Oxford. Sorry. Hey,
1: no, <laughs> no, that was so. But I'm. But what? Paved the way for my part of the Oxford story was that when I was working in the hospital here in Philadelphia, I ended up getting into computers and uh, uh, ultimately software development.
2: Gotcha.
1: And um, I had the opportunity because we, we lived in California for two years, and I had the opportunity to work with um, some of the men who had designed this particular database software that I knew. And so when the moment came when we needed to go, to Oxford
2: Mm.
1: I contacted Oxford University's computing services and thought maybe I could get a job you know working in their department or something and they had standardized on the software that I knew oh great and so they were my first client client when I got to um when I got to Oxford and I really had ended up with a monopoly on on that software, which I knew better than it was an American product. So I knew it better yeah. than the over there. And that's what fed us while we were over there and <laughs> paid, paid the bills. But it was just, um, it was hard for us to go. It was hard to start over again when you think you're almost to the finish line, but it was life changing hmm. to, to go there for, for all of us. I mean, we have a daughter and, those are her earliest memories, Hmm. but for both, you know, just to to be that far away from home and to be around people who aren't from your country and to just get some perspective on things. It was, it was really, it was a life changing experience for us.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it really is a magical place. Um, well, um, I really would love to talk to you all day about that experience, actually. But we probably should talk a little bit about your work, <laughs> since that's what that's what you that you've brought to the world here, which is such a gift. Um, a number of you've got a number of different works, um, and I, I want to maybe we'll let's start with. Um, well, I'm trying to think. I wonder if you think it would be better to start with uh, Finding God in the Margins, or if it would be better to. Um, maybe offer us a little bit of the some of the background of patriarchy that has been woven through much of your of of your work um just to set a groundwork for people listening because um you know there's um there's conversations i've heard you write about it talk about it this people talk about patriarchy they talk about um well there's there 's modern issues as well but would you be willing just to kind of start us out give us just a overview of what that means to you and um sort of what your perspective was going on with the Bible, because as we take a look at your new book with Ruth, that's basically going to be the backdrop for this, I think, right?
1: Right, right. You know, it's sort of been um, a gradual process for me, because I think most of us believe that some version of patriarchy is biblical, because patriarchy is on every page of the Bible, the 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 ones God chose to move his purposes forward for the world were patriarchs. And so we sort of sift and say, well, you know, we're not, we're going to throw out polygamy. And it took a long time to throw out slavery, but eventually that happened. Um, but what happened for me in my work is that I began to see that patriarchy is a really important tool for studying the Bible that the first thing we need to tell ourselves when we open the Bible is that we are not reading an American book. Hmm. That we are foreigners to the world of the Bible and that patriarchy is is not the Bible's message. Patriarchy is the backdrop to the Bible's message and that backdrop sets off in the strongest relief the countercultural otherworldly um, radical nature of the gospel message, the Bible's message. And um, so patriarchy is important as a tool, but, you know, Jesus didn't come to give us a kinder, gentler version of any system, any social system or political system Um or economic system that we see in the world today he said my kingdom is not of this world and so you know we've got a ways to go to understand and grasp what he is all about what um, God's vision is all about for us and um, you know it took me a while to come to that point of view and looking at it but You know, when you study the stories of women and men in the Bible, um, you need that tool. You need to understand the world and the culture that they live in. Um, You need to understand how patriarchy uh, puts a premium on men and boys. And it means that girls don't matter. Um, that, they're a, that a woman's, I mean, this is huge in the book of Ruth, that a woman's job is to produce sons for her husband. Yeah. And, and that sons are essential for the survival of the family and that it is an utter calamity. And we see this in stories of barren women in the Bible. It's an utter calamity when a wife cannot produce a son because it means the family will be extinguished. There won't be another generation. And so, you know, barren women in the Bible aren't begging God for a baby. They're not begging God for daughters. They're begging for sons. And you know, the way you the way you measure the value of a woman in the biblical in the culture of the Bible, the backdrop, is that you count her sons. And so it's a it's it's a big deal in patriarchal cultures today, too. Um, You know, I heard the story of a Palestinian man in this century whose wife gave birth to a daughter and then she couldn't get pregnant again. And he was absolutely desperate. He said, I am nothing in this village without a son. Hmm. I mean, that's so that just really opens up the stories in the Bible of you know the the cultural system that, the, that they were locked into and then how god the message that god gives us uh, counteracts that and um, you know especially in the book of Ruth it's just it would be jarring to to read the book of Ruth within that cultural context
0: hmm. well in your let's maybe let's jump into Ruth a minute because um you know it's a it's it's an old testament book of the bible that um you know it seems like one of those books that there's a few few one liners in it that people tend to write down and put on you know weave into blankets or make little posters for about where you go I'll go and some really poignant moments in the story um but there is reading your book and I do hope it's it's um it's a very readable book that I think people that have not um I'll be a little long winded here for a second, but I think this is important like for as you were talking about patriarchy in the Bible and that we have to understand the culture that it was that it was written in and that still exists in some ways. Um people that only read the Bible people that read the Bible without taking that into consideration miss out on what you're sharing with what you're gonna be sharing with us today about the story of Ruth, uh just as a start, among many others you've talked about. And so um, but in this, cause in the story of Ruth, as you begin to, to consider this thing about sons, like you say, um, we find this and many people might know the story, So maybe, I don't know if you give the 32nd version, but you've got this, you've got so many issues coming into this, not just like a, um, a lack of sons for her that she has her sons die, but lose their husband's sons. And now she's a foreigner with her living with her daughters-in-law and, and one takes off and the one sticks with her and, and you start talking about, I wonder if you'll just touch on a couple of the, um, like I said, this is going to be a long winded part, (laughs) part of the question. Um, I wonder if you would start just painting the the picture of what you think it might've been like for Naomi, Um, the showing up on the scene and what beyond the Sunday school version of the story, sort of how the, the raw reality uh, as we read this story in its actual context, what her story might've looked like. Is that too big of a question?
1: <laughs> no, it's okay. a great question. Okay. Um, you know, the, and, and let me just say this, that there has been in old Testament studies, a lot more work done on the book of Ruth. And, you know, most of us who have heard the book of Ruth taught or even read it just for ourselves, Have sort of landed on this Cinderella story where the, you know, the heart of the story to, to most modern American readers is the, the meeting between Ruth and Boaz. And that's sort of when the sparks begin to fly and there's this romance in the air. But when you put that patriarchal backdrop underneath this story, it, you can't sustain that. And, you know that, and and it's hard to preach Cinderella, frankly, in a fallen world. You know, none of us are living Cinderella stories. So, but when, what you have when you look at the story in the Book of Ruth, and you and you put that cultural backdrop there, where um, you know a woman's value is in producing her son, producing sons for her husband, Naomi starts out looking pretty good you know she's produced two sons for her husband so the next generation is secure but then in the first five verses of the book of ruth she goes to ground zero and this becomes a very different story um scholars are now calling the book of ruth a job story and that this is ultimately a book about god and about his love And the way we look at God when we're when our world falls apart um, is that we wonder the same thing she wondered. She thought God was against her, so she becomes a famine refugee. You know, and for me, this second book on the Book of Ruth has really been um, aided by current events. Because, you know, just that one thing. When you look at refugees in today's world, you know, how many Job stories are right there with everything they've suffered and lost? And, you know, what is what future do they have? And, you know, it's it's terrible. But that's just the beginning of losses for Naomi. You know, they they migrate to Moab, which is today's Jordan. They migrate from, you know, Israel into what would be Arab Arab territory today. And um, she and her husband and and their two sons, and then her husband dies. So the very thing they're running away from meets them. Mm -hmm. And so she's a widow, which is, you know, an at-risk demographic, especially in a foreign country, but she's got two sons. And they marry pagan
2: girls.
1: (laughs) You know, so it's it's not—it's not—it's this is this is not the dream that Naomi ever had in her head about how her story would play out. And then they go through ten years of double infertility. So you know, just month after month after month, a nightmare for this family. And then instead of a positive pregnancy test both of her sons die Hmm. and Naomi is past childbearing years. So unlike Job, she doesn't get a second chance. And you know, the way the world would look at her and the danger that she is in as a woman without a male protector is chilling.
0: And that did stand out to me when just two thoughts about that, that initial part of the story you were, you're bringing attention to is, um, First of all I had not heard it um talked about as another type of a Job story, first of all, but and that it started to make sense as I as I read, um, read along with what you were what you've said and, and wrote about in the book, but but also even the um as you started talking about the refugees, um, uh how it very much mirrors today. I mean I know just the brief time I spent in modern day Jordan with um help trying to help out with some Syrian refugees um, that those, those were the stories that the the refugees shared. They they said they had no food. I mean, they were just. We said, how, you know, how do you eat? And they're just, you know, mimicking, pull, trying to pull things out of the ground, finding anything they can to survive. And so, um, I only uh, I add that in here just for anybody who was missing how very much a modern tale this is. Um, it's it's fascinating. So yeah,
1: yeah. And there's so many places in the world that are the same culture. You know, the same kind of social culture that Naomi and Ruth live in, lived in, you know, where women, women are marginal and, you know, men are the ones who are important. And, you know, and so what happens in this story is that you end up with two childless widows, which is just dangerous, And um, and, you know, one is past childbearing years and the other is certifiably barren.
2: Mm.
1: You know, these aren't winners. These are losers. (laughs) And, you know, if you count their sons, they're both zeros. Mm. But I I think Ruth drops below zero because she becomes an undocumented immigrant. And for and those and
0: for those who don't know the story she's one of the daughters the daughter-in-laws that decided to stick with Naomi.
1: Right, which is just, you know, I mean, in the in the eyes of the culture it would have been a really stupid decision for her to make. Okay. Because she's going to be an immigrant, she's she's young, so she you know, by all you know, the way things work out she will outlive her mother-in-law and end up alone. This isn't you know something where she's going to catch a plane and fly home to see her family.
0: <laughs> it's it's not a good plan.
1: No, no, and it's and the the text really makes that point because when her daughter, when her sister-in-law goes back home to family where there's safety and security and maybe there can be an arranged marriage, she can be wife number 3 in a polygamous marriage because she's barren, she's not going to be a catch.
2: Mhm.
1: Um so the contrast between her sister-in-law and Ruth is stark and Naomi is completely exasperated with her. Um you know she wants her to go back and you know there's no future in Bethlehem there's just suffering ahead. And um and that's a that is a powerful conversion moment in in the book of Ruth when Ruth digs in her heels and, and embraces Naomi after hearing all the awful things she's saying about God mm-hmm. and embracing God and embracing Naomi's people. I mean, it is like uh, 100% reverse, you know, she's making a huge U-turn in her story mm-hmm. and she becomes a different, I mean, it's a turning point for Ruth. And, um, you know, the the character development in the book of Ruth, uh, you know, in Naomi in in Ruth and Boaz is just extraordinary. And, you know, God doesn't work in powerful ways.
0: Well, maybe talk to me for a second, if you would, about the reality of that story, even though there's this powerful moment, because uh, we have this um, what is often portrayed as a very um, and I'm, this is not meant to to denigrate Boaz, but maybe not as, you know, um, Disney Prince as, you know, we first uh, think of, I mean, it still seems to be like there, um, while there are some noble things that we see, there's also still, we're still living in that patriarchal world where these women seem to be thought of as possessions almost. Um, And, uh, you know, I wonder if you just, you know, as we, so I, I think about, maybe if you would share just for a second about the, the nature of what, what Boaz did, um, how he handled himself and and how that might speak to us today, um, like you said particularly with the with the um, this whole how do we treat refugees um, I'm not asking you to make any kind of political uh, statements or policy decisions, but at least on a personal level like how we might be being instructed to treat those because it seemed um, it seems like it's not it was there's a pretty deep message there.
1: Well, you know the Bible has some very strong things to say about refugees and foreigners, and um, my goodness, I don't, and I don't mind quoting. <laughs> you know, I mean, in Leviticus, um, it says, "When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native-born. Love them as yourself." For you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. That's Leviticus 19. And then in Deuteronomy 10, um, it says, God defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners. For you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. So it's, you know, that's not me saying that.
0: (laughs) You're saying it's not so gray.
1: Yeah, I mean, and Jesus, you know, Jesus didn't just perform miracles for Israelites. He performed them for foreigners. And, you know, the, I think the Bible is pretty clear about all of that. Um, but what you have in Boaz is you have a native-born man who is introduced into the story as a, as a powerhouse of a man. He's introduced as a man Hayel which is a military word. He could have even been a military hero. There were lots of wars in the, in that particular era, but um, you know, the disparity between Boaz and the women couldn't be more pronounced. And um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's sort of in an aside to the reader that he's introduced into the story. And um Ruth doesn't know anything except that he's the powerful landowner. And, you know, in, in a lot of cultures today, um, in the landowners are the ones who are seizing the property of the poor and abusing the widows. And, you know, he's, he's in a demographic that could prove to be very dangerous. Um, but he is a totally different kind of man. And, um, and what he does in um, in the story of Ruth, you know, he's he we've we've always considered him to be the hero of the story and that he's going to rescue Ruth. But what happens is she makes initiatives. She, here she is, the, the foreigner, the newcomer, the brand new convert, the poor scavenger in his field picking up scraps of grain Um, But she has the audacity to uh, reinterpret to him mosaic law. I mean, think how insulting that would be for a landowner who is in compliance with gleaning laws. Gleaning was the Israel's welfare system. So here we have an immigrant and the first thing she does is go on welfare, you know, which is just what everybody's afraid will happen um, but she, the the gleaning was to let the poor, the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner come into the field after the harvesters have cleared it, and uh, and pick up the scraps. And it would it was not a safe place. Even Boaz will will tell his men not to touch her. Um, but what she does when she looks at that law she's looking from at the law from the perspective of the hungry side Hmm. and it looks different from that point of view and so what she's asking for is is the right to glean where freshly cut grain is lying on the ground and the female harvesters haven't gathered it up into bundles and they haven't carted it off yet. She wants, she doesn't want to take home scraps to Naomi. She wants to feed her. And so she she makes this proposal and Boaz has already heard about her and this radical choice that she made to leave her family and leave her homeland and come to Israel. So, you know, the Bethlehemites are already talking about her.
0: Yeah. which 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 by the way for people that have not ever um I thought that was a very poignant moment in the story because um it seemed like that Boaz really honored her her t- story. I mean he he had heard about her and um you know let her know that he had that he sort of honored what she had been through. And I thought that was a very interesting thing. But then even after that it sort of got weird, right? I mean like this whole like she started kind of sketching around the edge of the rules and Weird, like, uncovering people's feet. That was sort of strange stuff.
1: But what you've just said is is really earth-shaking. For him to look at this undocumented immigrant scavenging in his field and to honor her in that culture, this worthless, barren, young woman I mean, if, you know, people always say, oh, you know, it was such a magical moment. But if you had eHarmony in that culture, <laughs> she would not make the first criteria. She was barren. And the first thing a man would be looking for in a wife would be that she could produce sons for him. But but the second thing he would be looking for, and actually his family would be looking for, are what are her connections and how is she going to improve our family status by associating us with another, you know, prestigious family in the community. She only has, you know, she brings nothing. She brings nothing. And so in the context of that patriarchal culture, and that's why the patriarchal backdrop is so significant, he is honoring her. I mean, it's just totally countercultural right there.
2: Mm.
1: And, and I think the, that the one of the remarkable things that the Book of Ruth does is it raises the value of a woman and it also raises the value of a man it doesn't you know diminish a man it it it's sort of it 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 raises the value of of both of them by by their conduct and by the way they live before the face of god and it makes her courageous and it makes him generous and it makes him use his power and privilege in Beautiful ways to make sure she feeds her mother in law. So she, when the day's over and Naomi's dreading that she's going to come home bruised and, you know, shattered by how she's been treated and maybe raped, she walks in the door with 29 pounds of winnowed barley, hmm. which, you know, it would take a male harvester at least a half a month to a full month to bring home that much in pay. So, I mean, it's, it's like the mother load. Yeah. And, and that's when Naomi realizes that's the turning point for Naomi when she realizes God has, has not abandoned his Hesed, his love for her. But anyway, okay, back to the uncovering feet. (laughs) (laughs) Scandalous. (laughs) So then in the, in that episode, it's the end of the harvest Boaz has, you know, given her an open invitation to keep gleaning. So I'm sure she's, you know, they they have a well-stocked larder um, because of the work she's done and how Boaz has empowered her. Um, Then Naomi's concerned about Ruth's future because Naomi knows that Ruth will outlive her. Hmm. And so she wants to get her under the shelter of a male umbrella. Now here's where we have to look at Boaz very carefully because, you know, we've turned, we turn him into this handsome eligible bachelor, but in patriarchy, you don't have bachelors (laughs) because there's such a, a pressure to, to start producing the next generation of sons. And Boaz is a man of, high esteem in the community and he's an older man he's in Naomi's generation so if he hadn't married and produced sons for his family he would be a man of dishonor he would not be a man of honor and you know he could have been a widower he could have been a polygamist in in the you know the first readers of this story would not have cared because this was a polygamous culture. Lots of biblical characters had multiple wives. So Naomi's not sending Ruth to be his dream wife. She's asking for mercy. And Ruth is not about to start looking for a husband for herself. She's gonna, she is battling for the survival of the family. She's fighting to rescue Naomi's family.
0: It It is interesting how much less, not that there's no, there's not any love story to notice in this, but it is fascinating that it seems way more a survival story uh, than yeah. than anything else.
1: But you know, it is a love story because the key word in the book of Ruth is the word "hesed," And it's the, it's the love that God has for his people. And we don't have an English word for it. We use, you know, we say love or kindness or mercy or loving kindness, but none of those words adequately describe the kind of love we're talking about. It's God's love for his people. It's a... It's a voluntary love. It's a costly love. It's sacrificial and it's stubborn. He doesn't give up. And it's what Naomi fears she's lost. It's what she discovers is still in place for her, even though the culture would rank her as a zero. And she sees it when she gets this first load of grain. And it's what Boaz and Ruth, their joint actions display to her. You know everything that they're doing is an expression of that kind of love. It's a love that you know that no one has a right to ask of you. Mm. It goes above and beyond, and and they and they all do that. And you know Naomi sends Ruth to Boaz to propose, you know, to to offer herself to him in marriage, mm. and she's giving up all she has when she sends Ruth out, and and Ruth volunteers to give birth to a son. That's what she's doing when she, when she makes this proposal to Boaz, she's pulling out more mosaic laws and reinterpreting them. And, and Boaz is beyond the letter of both of those laws. He's not the nearest kinsman redeemer. He's not the blood brother of Elimelech. but he will make sure that Ruth, Ruth's proposal is accomplished.
0: Hmm. Um, this might be a good, I, I want to, um, there's so much in this story that it, it's very much worth grabbing the book. If, um, again, it's finding God in the margins. Um, this brings me back to modern day for a second though. And I wonder if you'd be willing to spend a second talking about, um, this idea of privilege and this idea, cause you were kind of a, you know, the love they were showing, they were, they were setting Boaz particularly set aside privileges. He could have utilized, um, uh, but you know, in modern day, we hear that that word "privilege" is is discussed a lot. It's brought up a lot, and um, I wonder, particularly for for men and women that are that are sort of a part of a traditional church, because um, it seems like men and women outside of the church these days don't have as much of a problem identifying like equality and things. But um, I wonder, particularly in the church, if you might address uh, what that might look for us today. This idea of the word privilege and um, maybe what we can learn from Bo is that we could take back to to today, if that makes sense.
2: Yeah.
1: I think that's so important to ask. And, um, you know, he has power and privilege and he uses it. Um, When, you know, when you see him at the city gate, the kinds of things he's doing, he's giving Naomi property rights. She didn't have any property rights Widows didn't have property rights, but he just he states it. she's selling her property and um, and he insists that marriage to Ruth is part of the deal. Why is that part of the deal? Nobody even asks that question of him. I mean, he has power and privilege and he's using it for the sake of others. And, you know, we do have power and privilege and, and men especially do. Um, over over you know and this is where the the idea of patriarchy you know permeates every culture where it privileges especially men um, over women and over other men you know so it's it's you know everybody's experiencing you know the the impact of that and and what you see in the bible is that god and that the Power and privilege are trusts, that they are gifts and that they are not to be used to exploit or to um, discriminate or to marginalize. They're used to empower and bless. Mm. And, you know, if, if that was that's what Boaz does, I mean, before Ruth escapes her zero status. He is praising her as a woman Hayel. He is throwing his weight behind what she has proposed. And it's all for the sake of Naomi. And, and she's risking more shame because if he marries her and she still doesn't get pregnant, then she's just doubly barren. Um and before, you know, before they marry, the the whole community, and this is Boaz's influence and her reputation, but the whole community embraces her as one of them. You know, they don't just give her a green card or, you know, a, a, the ability to pursue citizenship. They embrace her at the highest level of the of the community as one of Israel's Matriarchs, you know hmm. Rachel and Leah and Tamar, and, you know. So it's so p- power and privilege. I don't know how you disempower yourself or you know disprivilege yourself. These these are trusts and gifts hmm. that can, you know that can change everything for other people. I mean, we have so much power and privilege in the church, and it's not for us. <laughs> yeah. No, it's for the sake of others, I mean, think what we could do
0: well, you know, I think one of the things that's there's a well I'm, I'm my brain's always got three different thoughts at the same time um but uh you know one of the things the first of those three things in my head is that when you're talking about um you know about is there is this we see how one can like um honorably use your the privilege that he had to to show honor and respect and to um to lift others up. We see that it didn't bring him down to share that privilege with other people, but actually sort of it, it helped everybody. Um,
1: it brings him up. I think it brings him up higher than he was. And he's already high at the beginning, yeah, yeah. but it brings him up higher, which is such an important point to make because a lot of times there is this assumption that if, you know, a woman is promoted, if a woman is empowered, that it comes at a cost for men, but you know, if it's if it's done for the sake of the gospel, if it's done as you know, as a choice that we make when we stand before the face of God and we say, you know, God has entrusted gifts to His church, and we are to be stewards of those gifts, then you know, men don't lose. Yeah. you know, it,
0: it's it's well,
1: it's a it's a win-win
0: yeah and I think that that's a probably a subject we don't have time for but I think in one of your previous works you've touched on the the imago day you've spent some time um, addressing that which might which might play a role in that um I I did want to ask you um, as we see because we are talking about this it's a win-win when we share this privilege um, but is you know one of the things because we talked about this patriarchal or patriarchal system that that Boaz was operating it it doesn't seem like the scripture is it's the backdrop like you said so it's not it does not appear at least to be an endorsement of that type of system um but it's just what the system was at the time but how to live honorably within that system and and change the rules when he needed to um but one of the things that sort of sneaks in the back door in this conversation for some people particularly that come out of um certain traditions, uh, faith traditions, Um, we talk about equality and, you know, sharing privilege, but sometimes baggage slips in where there's still a little bit of a less than um, value attached to the woman, if that makes sense. So yeah, we're okay with the idea of, you know, providing um, a position that wasn't provided before, but there might still be this um, thought if that makes sense that there's a little bit of a less than even though you have membership you're not quite a full full member um mm-hmm. you've talked in other places about um uh this word um Azer I don't know if I'm saying that right E Z E R and I thought that was might might be an interesting piece just to add into this about the actual what women it might affect men's perspective sometimes about why it's the strength that um Scripture talks about women having. Is that too much of a jump?
1: No, it's it's very significant to this story. Um, in Genesis 2, when the biblical camera zooms in and gives us a close-up of the creation of male and female, that's where this word appears for the first time. It's the Hebrew word "azer," and um, it it's usually translated helper. And that's the, that's where in the 18th verse of chapter two, God looks at the man and he says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make an azer, which is a helper, suitable, which is the word connecto. I will make an azer connecto for him. And um, we we often reduce this to a discussion of marriage, but it is not. It's about male and female. It doesn't talk about marriage until the very end of the chapter, when it makes this very anti-patriarchal statement that (laughs) for this cause a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. Um, Under patriarchy, the wife is absorbed in her husband's family, and she comes under the thumb of her in laws. So it's. You know, it's a very, it, somebody from a, a, a full-fledged patriarchal culture would be blown away by that statement. Hmm. It, it's a blanket statement. It is not good for the man to be alone, and this is what he needs. And it's not to say there's anything wrong with the man, which, you know, he's just finished naming the animals. That's the beginning of science, of zoology. Um, God's not fixing the man. He's a masterpiece. But he's teaching us about relationships, and he's saying what I'm about to create the man needs, and it's not good for him to be without her. Hmm. And I looked up the word, you know, the Azer, you know, when they when they study Hebrew, scholars will do an inventory of a word like that to find out how you know how it's used in the Bible, and it was used 21 times in the Old Testament as a noun. It's used. Twice in Genesis for the woman, and she's three times for the nations, three nations that Israel's is asking them to send their armies because they're under attack and they're being overpowered. And the remaining 16 times it's used for God as the helper of his people. But when I looked up all those verses, um, I realized that every time the word Aser appears, it's in a military context. You know, God is our shield and defense. He's better than chariots and horses you know, please send your armies, we're under assault. And um, every single verse. And when I came back to the Genesis narrative and looked more closely, I began to see that Eden is, Eden was a war zone, that there was an enemy ready, getting ready to attack, that the man was commanded to guard the garden. It's, that's the language that's used for the angel guarding the garden when they're evicted and guarding it with a sword. Um, they are created to rule and subdue. So it's, it's. I concluded from that that the Azer is a warrior. And here's the thing, you know, that I, I love the way you described it, that, you know, that a, that a woman can be added to the table, but she's not one of the guys, you know, no. she, she's kind of it. And that's because there's not this understanding that, she's needed there. It's sort of like a favor is being done to females because we've added a female table, a chair to the table. And according to the Bible, she's essential for the men that they need her. And, you know, I think that's where things will change is when we understand that we need each other, that we need different perspectives that, that, um, it's not good for the man to be alone. Um, one of the secular examples I have of this is that when we had the 2008 economic crash, some financial experts were asking, would we be in this situation if it had been Lehman Brothers and Sisters? <laughs> you know, because not because women would be better, you know, but, um, at financial matters, but that different decisions get made when men and women collaborate and better decisions because you have more perspectives and, um, and that's what happened with Ruth and Boaz. You know, he understood Mosaic law. He was in perfect compliance with the letter of the law. She comes along and points out that there are infinite ways of being obedient to God's law and, and he gets it. You know, he totally, he becomes a different man because of his interaction with her. He learns from her,
2: hmm.
1: it's insane, but it happens.
0: Carolyn, uh, there's so much in here. I, um, Time's getting away from us. Um, I One of the things I want to make sure if somebody's listening is that um, one of the things, and I'm newer to your work over this past year, um, but one of the things that I have been so um, interested by is that um maybe i mentioned this to you but it's a it's a bit of a slower conversation because it forces you to you very helpfully um walk us through scriptural stories um with some new filters in place and help us to consider um what new truths might (laughs) might we might learn from it and particularly its impact on modern life that is so just right there um but all that said is so uh, – but there's too much to cover today. And so um, – uh, but one of the things um, that we should probably wrap up with is I like to ask people, you know, what what are the questions you wish more people were asking? I mean because you're, you're touching on issues of privilege and, you know, I've seen you do other things. Talking about the Me Too, it, the, it speaks to that and all these different things. Um, but when you think of people today – um what are the questions you wish you heard more people
1: asking? I I mean I just think we need to ask for more when we when we read scripture when we when we follow Jesus I I this is not something that we will ever master and to be hungry for more to be hungry for greater obedience for a more radical allegiance to Jesus. Um, I, you know, that, I just feel like we have a long way to go. We are on the very front edges of learning all that God has given us in his word. And, um, you know, I, I, th- I think it's so easy for us from an American perspective to sort of diminish the potency of, of what we have in these narratives. And, um, you know, I, I just think we should be hungry for more. Hmm.
0: And, and I'm going to sneak one other question in that I really, I wanted to, to, it might be an easy answer, but because of some of the issues that you bring attention to when it comes to privilege, when it comes to refugees and, and all these things of equality and inclusion, um, do you get much – how how's it been received? How's your work been received? Has it been mostly positive or has it been uh, – that's just been fascinating to me, like how it might have – how others might receive what you're doing.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I think for a lot of people who are very tired of some of the debates and discussions that we have going on in the church about women, it has been freeing. And both for women and for men – and, um, you know, that's what it's done for me. I mean, none of this is, um, removed from my own story. It's, it's been life changing for me. Um, but yes, there has been a lot of opposition because, you know, we have camps in the, in the body of Christ and I don't, play to either one of those camps when people read my books they want to know where i am on women's ordination or they want to want to hear me say you know the man is the head and the boss and you know and i'm asking different questions um and i've you know i think that the way we talk about ourselves as men and women and how we relate to one another isn't just an american discussion it's a global discussion and um, I think there are bigger, deeper questions we need to be asking. And I think the gospel of Jesus utterly transforms everything. And and we've, you know, just to decide which camp you're in, isn't going to take you far
2: enough.
0: Hmm. Okay. I, that's helpful. I I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I just think that's a that's worth people people hearing. And, and the one other thing I was going to mention that that you've brought up twice that was an eye opener for me is that patriarchy and this idea that men being over women is just bad for women. Fascinating to me that in reality it's bad for most men too. There's that small number of men that are in the positions of power, but it actually does disempower most, most men too. So. I, that I don't was...
2: even,
1: yeah. I don't even think it's good for the men at the top.
0: Oh. I mean, yeah. Well, probably right. Yeah.
1: They got to fight to stay there. They've got to do all sorts of things to, keep everybody else down you know it's 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 not good for their souls
2: yeah
0: carolyn clearly i'll talk all day with you um thank you so much for joining us on the show really really appreciate it and people can find your stuff at uh carolyncustisjames.com is that right yes Yes. thank you very much books there and amazon and, and all the rest so thank you so much
1: thank you